you say feminism is not toxic. People are toxic. How do you define feminism? There is a definition, and then there's a cultural misunderstanding of the definition. Feminism simply means that you believe in women's social, political, and economic equality. That's it. And when you explain it like that, everybody says, oh, well, then I'm a feminist. Judge Rosemarie Aquilina served as a 55th District Court Judge for four years and then has been elected as a 30th Circuit Court Judge in Ingham County in November of 08. She retired honorably from the Michigan Army National Guard after 20 years of service. She was the first female JAG officer in the Michigan Army National Guard, also the most requested JAG officer of all time, not by accident. She served as administrative assistant to State Senator John F. Kelly for 10 years, and she actually hosted Ask the Family Lawyer, which was a syndicated show. She is a published author. She has fictional novels, Feel No Evil, Triple Cross Killer, and All Rise. We'll talk about those in a minute, too. She's got a memoir coming out real soon called Just Watch Me. That was not a title picked at random. There's something in your courtroom that I really admire, and that is you let people speak. You let people say what they want to think. That bothers some people, I guess, because you let people speak whether everybody thinks they should have a voice or not. But you kind of let everybody talk, right? Well, it's my belief that it's not my courtroom. And a lot of judges believe it's their courtroom, their way, no matter what. I believe it's the people's court, and the people have a right to voice in on whatever case affects them. And I give them all the time they need. And learning what they have to say helps me be a better judge because it's that backstory that makes the story, that helps me make a decision. And I don't listen to the naysayers. And I have to say I appreciate that you appreciate my voice because so many people don't want me to speak up. And when I do, put me down. And I keep speaking up because no one puts me in a corner. No one tells me to shut up and stay quiet. But it's a hard road to travel for a woman to be outspoken. You've been bullied on the bench. Absolutely. Who bullies you? Male judges have bullied me. Uh, Female judges have bullied me. Uh, I have had two of my best female Judge friends have retired because of bullying. There are a number of female judges around uh, the country who have retired, a a few more in Michigan who I know who have retired or stepped down because they can't take the bullying. When I was pregnant with my twins, the chief judge called and said, so I hear you need a lot of time off. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, I hear you're pregnant and need a lot of time off. I said, did you talk to my doctor? Do you know something I don't know? I said, I've never taken maternity leave off. When I had my middle child, I delivered her on a Thursday, and by Wednesday I was arguing a case in front of the Court of Appeals and won. So I don't know what you're talking about. And then he sort of, he backed off. But I was, you know, I've copied off bench books. Bench books, um, thankfully, the Michigan Judicial Institute has a lot of bench books, and they are 300 to 800 pages printed them off. I'm used to reading paper. I like to tab them, so I have them on the bench. Chief judge came and accused me of stealing paper. So I bought four boxes of paper and brought them in. He didn't bother to ask. I had my own printer, my own computer, and I bring in my own paper regardless. Another judge came in and accused me and said, well, you know, you're you're teaching and you're doing all these things, and, you know, they're going to say that you're, um, you know, not a good judge. And I said, well, did you know that the state court administrator's office knows that I'm teaching? Because two hours a week I was teaching um, either from like 8 to 10 or 9 to 11 or 3 to 5. But I don't take lunch hours. I said, why don't you check my key card and see how many hours I put in? I put in more than the 40 hours. No one was willing to do that. Why? And it, and it why goes are on. they doing this? I think because I'm outspoken, because when there's a problem, I speak up, because I speak up for the little guy, because I call them on their crap, and I don't really know. I I try to do the best job I can. I think they don't like that I'm in headlines. Many, you know, 
everybody's, like you said, familiar with Nasser, but I said no to the Detroit bankruptcy. I had the um, Dr. Mercer, who was, who's passed now, but allegedly killed his wife. I had Ricky Holland, who the adoptive parents uh, murdered him. I've had a lot of high-profile cases. I've been in the media. The computer and God put me there. I did nothing to do that. Um, I do not believe in that's the way it's always been done. When you say that to me, I'm going to undo whatever it is that you've just told me because that tells me that we need to look under that carpet because something's wrong. And I'm always the one who says, we're not doing that today. In fact, my staff says, why is it always you who speaks up? Well, somebody has to. And I never worry about the consequence to me. They want to get me off the bench. I will go take other employment. I will always be employed. I have enough confidence in myself that I'm going to do the right thing and to hell with anybody else. I have to live with myself. And I'd rather be the voice than the silent one who is a co-conspirator to any crime or any negativity. As I always say, don't just take a, a seat at the table because there's that whole thing about take a seat at the table, right? I want to take a seat at the table, be prepared, and be the light, the chandelier that shines on everyone. And I think that is our role in the world. And I will not be a silent woman ever. You were the first female JAG officer. I was. And uh, my paperwork sat and sat. And I thought, well, it's because I'm naturalized. They had to do extra paperwork. And it was in part. And then I learned that my paperwork was completed and was sitting on a colonel's desk. So I guess I could have been a woman who says, oh, discrimination and all of that. But why? What I did was use my brains. I just said, I'm going to volunteer. So I volunteered, called up the colonel and said, I know the paperwork's there. Let me volunteer and get ahead of the game. I know you're busy doing a lot of court, court marshals and all that other. And he said, okay. So I showed up. I was a lot younger, thinner, and prettier then. And I showed up in the tightest jeans I could fit into, that, like Elvis painted jeans on, right? <laughs> got, got the picture. And my cowboy boots, because I've always been wearing cowboy boots. And a, a reasonable shirt. And I showed up, did my work. We were on the second floor of the building at that time. And about 1030 is when everybody takes a little coffee break. So I went down knowing the general would be there and the colonels. And I just sort of sauntered in and took my time. Hello. And I got my uh, muffin and my coffee. And by the time I made it upstairs again, the colonel had the phone in his hand pointing between me and the phone and him and I could hear the general screaming, who is that woman? Why is that woman here? And he said, she's going to be one of us. Her paperwork's been approved. And he says, well, where is the paperwork? He said, I think in the colonel's office next to you. And the general screamed, get that woman in a uniform. The very next weekend, I was sworn in. The rest of that story is they took the contract they took out six years and put eight. I said, sir, please put 20. I will stay my 20. He swears me in, and then he says to me, Aquilina, the only thing that would have been better is if you were black. Because I was the only minority they had. Yeah, there you go. And there I go. So you might have uncomfortable. Yes. <laughs> well, it worked, and you did put in 20. I did put in 20, and I won so many cases and kept in so many people that, uh, at one particular camp uh, where I saved a lot of careers um, because they had done sloppy work, and I had done my homework. And I cross-examined a lot of commanders, and they were shaking and turning red, and basically it was entertaining for me to watch under cross-examination, which is a lot of fun, as you know. And uh, I walked out of the building, and one of the commanders was walking around in circles and said, Aquilina, you're a Barracuda. And the name stuck. So I became the Barracuda. How long will you stay on the bench? I am slated to stay on till I age out, which is 74. Uh, I do have a lot of other opportunities that are being offered to me. And so I don't know. I can't commit, but my original goal was to stay on till I'm 74. I love my job. Um, but I also have a number of opportunities and my mindset is that when someone makes you an offer, you respect them and your work and 
see if it fits with your goals because I also like the creative side. I like to write. Um, I love being on your show. I love talking to people. I do motivational speaking and I find that I can touch a lot of people that way and do the good that I think I'm supposed to be doing. You said you write. When do you write these books? Are you a binge writer? Do you write a little at a time? I like to write something every day. Uh, it's my self-care. I think that if you don't do self-care, you self-implode. So I write, I paint, I cook, I, I do lots of things. But I write and, and it gets stress out. I, we talked about bullying on the bench. I've been bullied enough where I have thought, I'm going to kill somebody. You know, we've all had those moments. So that's how All Rise was born. I was mad at the chief judge and I sat down and, and wrote it. And of course, it's about a judge who... Uh, is bullied on the bench and says, I'd rather be a hairdresser. So she runs off. She becomes a hairdresser, opens a salon and coffee shop because I love coffee. She wears cowboy boots like me and all of that. And as she's opening her salon, she gets arrested for killing the chief judge because he's been murdered. And of course, everything can be solved in a hair salon. It's really a big, <laughs> yes, of course. And so it's a big romp. You know, her staff comes with her. Some of the defendants who, she, who she's rehabilitated come work there. And it's a lot of fun, but when I'm stressed out, when someone bullies me, I can create whatever fiction I want and kill them off or slap them or uplift them. And it's just a lot of fun, and it de-stresses me. So I try to write every day, but especially when I'm upset. I write, I take out my frustrations, not on someone else, not on myself, but on the pages. Well, you've written three books and one on the way. Uh, Just Watch Me is inaudible. Reese Witherspoon um, talked to me about my story and said, we've got to have the story. And so uh, Hello Sunshine and Audible and, and Reese, um, we produced that last year. I um, taped it. It's only an audible, but as of middle, hopefully by Valentine's, um, it will be out in book form because so many people have said, I want it and I want you to sign it. So, and not everybody likes Audible. They they like to read. Mm -hmm. I love Audible because I drive around, I cook, I listen to stories, I catch up on my reading, but I also am someone who likes to hold the books. So all of my books come in all forms. And Just Watch Me is totally all about you. It's about me. It's it's about some of the things we've talked about, how I grew up, why, why I've done the things I've done, some of the stories uh, of cases that I've done and what I've learned. Uh, like asking, you know, what would you like me to know? How can I help? Instead of that awful why question, you know, why needs to be retired in science? Why were you wearing that? Why were you there? Uh, why did you drink so much? Why didn't you make your bed? Why didn't you do your homework? That shames and blames, right? When I ask mm -hmm. you a why question, you want to run away. Give me the short answer and get out of there, right? But when I say, what would you like me to know and how can I help? You tell me what you're feeling. And I talk about those kinds of things and how I learned those lessons. You know, I, I'm just me. I, I've always done the same things. And I'm still astonished when people think that anything I do is, is special or different because I feel like I'm just doing what I'm supposed to be doing. So I was really honored um, when she asked me to do that. I'm always honored to be on your show and with your by your audience. Um, I, I just am... I don't know how to be somebody else. I'm just someone who wants to make sure that our kids have a better future. Well, even by being bullied some on the bench and stuff, which can't be fun and all, are, are you having fun doing what you're doing? Do you like what you're doing? I like what I'm doing. I feel like I make a difference. And more important, I'm contacted by people every single day saying thank you. And that is truly meaningful to me that they trust me with their stories that they share their lives with me, and that uh, I've made just a tiny difference. In, in You know, you can change history in a big way, but when you change an individual's history, that's enough. If you made a bad choice and were a defendant, would you want you for a judge? It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. Yes. I'm not an enabler. Uh, I will um, help you to do better, but you will have to do the hard work. I treat everybody in front of me how I want my family to be treated or how I would want to be treated. And I think that's the old country sort of style that I was raised in. But um, the answer is yes, because I listen. And because the decisions that I make, I think, are, are not just thoughtful, but include that backstory so that the next chapter in someone's life is going to be a meaningful, worthwhile, worthwhile one on a different path than they were on. Mm. At least that's what I hope. Wendy Murphy is an attorney that specializes in the representation of crime victims, particularly women and children. For more than 15 years, Wendy has served as an adjunct professor of sexual violence law at New England Law, Boston. She also co-directs the Women's and Children's Advocacy Project under the Center for Law and Social Responsibility. She's done so much. I could go on forever and not even get to her. How did you get involved in this particular area of the law? Tell me what guided you in this direction. I was prosecutor, uh, pretty routinely criticizing judges for how they were treating abused women and children in the sense that they were ordering them to do things that they weren't ordering robbery victims to do. Most significantly, they were ordering them to turn over years worth of counseling records, pediatric records, school records, uh, even though they weren't relevant and significantly predated the crime. And, and I just kept criticizing the court for treating these victims differently than other victims of other kinds of crimes. And it was irrational to me. And one day a judge said to me, he pulled his glasses down from his nose and said, Ms. Murphy, you are the government. Your job is to state the law, not complain about it. If you want to change the law, you have to get a different job. And uh, I guess that was the inspiration because I thought, wow, I'm the prosecutor. I, I think it's my job to stand up for victims when they're being mistreated. But this judge has just told me that's not my job. Um, so I do need to get a different job. And I literally left the DA's office as a prosecutor later that year and started doing pro bono work for victims, figuring this was a missing voice, if you will, in the system, and that and that they needed to be heard. They needed to be in that courtroom objecting and saying, you're not treating me fairly. It's not right for you to treat me because I'm a woman or a child differently than you're treating the victim of a robbery or the eyewitness to a carjacking. So uh, when I started that part of my career, it was, again, all pro bono because most victims don't have any money. And I told my husband at the time, I'm just going to do this for a year or so, and then I'll get a real job. And um, that was about 30 years ago, and I've been doing pro bono work ever since. What is the mentality? Does this go back to the 14th Amendment, never really including women? Or, I mean, is it that most judges are men? Because as you know, when I had a real job before Dr. Phil, it was in the litigation arena, and I was many times court-appointed as a trial scientist to be involved in criminal cases on a pro bono basis, and I saw exactly what you're seeing, where there was clearly a double standard, and they were required to produce all of this information, which was just so much ammunition for the other side to drag up irrelevant pre-crime information to impeach the veracity of the victim and use it against them. Where are the roots of that? Why is that going on? And it's still going on. 
The 14th Amendment, we all know and love as a really important constitutional amendment that was adopted by this country in 1869, and it guarantees all of us equal protection of law and due process of law. The problem is, pretty quickly after that was adopted, the Supreme Court of the United States decided that women and only women were not covered by the 14th Amendment, that the 14th Amendment was really only meant to protect black men. So women of all colors and stripes uh, were excluded from really the most important constitutional protections in our, in our laws, in our most foundational laws, uh, equal um, justice. Equal justice was denied women in 1869, and we still don't have it. That's what gives the judges permission and the power to say, it doesn't matter, Attorney Murphy or Dr. Phil, if you don't think this looks right because we're giving, uh, you know, better protection to other types of crime victims and we're mistreating women and children who've been abused. It doesn't matter that you think that's not fair. It may not be fair, but it's constitutional. And until we fix the 14th Amendment, it will continue to be constitutional. And that's why we've been fighting for the Equal Rights Amendment for over 100 years. The Equal Rights Amendment is really the repair of the 14th Amendment. It literally says you have to give women equal protection of law because you left them out of the 14th Amendment. The Equal Rights Amendment, many people don't even know about. It was um, first passed by Congress in 1972. We never had it ratified by a sufficient number of states. And, you know, the important part of this story is that we need to get the word out. We need to get the word out that not having equal protection of law manifests itself in very real ways and causes suffering in the name of justice in ways that you described and in ways that I've been experiencing for decades. And see, that's the thing. And I think there are a lot of people, men and women, but women that get victimized by it, are not aware that women do not have equal protection under the law. They don't have it constitutionally, and they don't have it pragmatically. And you don't realize that until you wind up in the court system and there's somebody up there saying, HIPAA be damned, confidentiality be damned, and all of the rules of evidence that apply in other crimes all of a sudden are thrown out the window. Right. And all of these things that you can't bring up in a robbery case or you can't bring up in a murder case about pre-offense information that never gets in front of a jury all of a sudden is paraded out in front of the jury about a victim that has been brutally raped, they can now talk about what she did in high school, what she did in college, what she did at a party three weeks before this happened. And you're sitting there saying, wait a minute, this predated the offense. What the hell does this have to do with what happened that night? Yep. But yet it's admitted and it's not reversed on appeal when it is clear, it is clear violation of the rules of evidence. So yep. it doesn't happen just at the trial level. It's upheld at the appellate level. I was representing a woman who'd been nearly killed by a man who had also brutally raped and, and killed other women. And she was brave enough to testify against him. And he demanded access to her counseling records, counseling records that predated this man's brutal assault of her. Um, we fought like hell to stop those records from being turned over because when she had therapy, she was told by her therapist that that, that that was a private session, that what she was saying was confidential. And she needed that promise of confidentiality in order to be open about her feelings and to get better. But um, the judge basically, and, and when I challenged the judge who ordered the records turned over, I said, what does this have to do with anything? about what happened the night he beat her. Uh, you know, why aren't you ordering her to turn over her grocery receipts if you don't care about relevancy, right? The judge slammed his gavel and said, Ms. Murphy, if you keep talking, I'm going to dismiss the charges and this man will walk free. That's what it came to. So my client starts sobbing. She begged me to give him anything he wants. If this man gets out of jail, he's gonna kill me. Please just give him my counseling records. So we did. And um, in the records, there was a description of her being sexually abused by her dad when she was a little girl. Um, no one knew about it. Her family didn't know. And of course, 
What did that man use as evidence during the trial? That she had been sexually abused by her father and she was now falsely accusing him in order to avenge her childhood experience. Uh, that, you know, she ended up winning the case, but what a price to pay that that had to be revealed to the whole world. Because the news was covering the case, her family found out, everyone learned something that should have been confidential, had nothing to do with the case, was deeply personal to her. And that's a price for justice that we only impose on women, and it's outrageous. You and I were in a conversation, I don't know, maybe a month ago, and Warren Farrell (laughs) was there. And I guess he's called the father of the men's rights movement. And you had a lot of issues (laughs) with what Warren Farrell had to say, including that men need a movement. In fact, you said to call a men's rights movement a movement is part of the problem that a movement is attached to an underclass, and it's very difficult to hear white men say they are enduring any kind of structural harm. He talks a lot about the fact that men are culturally forced into very strict roles where they're not allowed to be emotional or raise the children. They are only valued for how much money they make. I agree with him about that. I think it's terrible that men are valued only based on how much money they make and whether they um, are expressing their masculinity in an aggressive and rough, manly way. Uh, I, I, I think that's probably where we have common ground. Where I disagree with him strongly is the idea that the solution to that problem is a men's rights movement, because really um, men have had supremacy in this country since the beginning. And as I mentioned earlier, in 1869, the Constitution declared men supreme under the 14th Amendment. Uh, And until we fix that, until women are actually equal humans, equal citizens in this country, I think it's just offensive to have a men's rights movement. Let's get women equal first. And then, you know, whatever movements we have, we'll, you know, we can at least be at a level playing field. He was saying that women have a choice to be a mother or a professional or both. And you said he's 100% wrong. Why do you say that? Well, first of all, women are not just in these two boxes. I think women are much more complicated and interesting people than uh, just mothers or workers. Uh, And also, you know, as a mother and a worker and a lot of other things. I go fishing and I hang tile and I enjoy hot yoga. (laughs) Um, I think to think of women as multidimensional is important, but it's also really important not to put them in this dichotomous choice because by definition, if you only can be one thing or the other, then when you're choosing one thing, you're doing harm to the other and vice versa. And Enormous numbers of women in this country are very happily uh, doing a lot of things. You know, some of the time they are focused on their families. Some of the time they're focused on their work. Some of the time they're doing both things at the same time. I mean, I've brought my newborn to court during a jury trial. I asked a judge for a break so I could breastfeed her. She was only two weeks old. I had to induce the birth of my fifth child so that I could on a Sunday night so that I could get to the Supreme Court in my state Wednesday morning with a two and a half day old baby in tow. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute. That didn't sound like a whole lot when you said it real fast, but hold on. You induced your fifth child and then took it to court two and a half days later? I did. I had to because the court knew that I was pregnant and they ordered me to be at the hearing at the Supreme Court. So my baby didn't come out by Sunday night. I asked my doctor, please. She was overdue. So she was quite cooked, ready to come out. But she wasn't out by Sunday night. I asked my doctor to please induce me. 
because assuming everything went well, I would get out of the hospital Tuesday afternoon and be able to get to court with her because obviously I was a nursing mom uh, Wednesday morning. And that's exactly what I did. She was two and a half days old. And I was arguing the case completely exhausted, still wearing maternity clothes, brain dead, but it had to be done. So I, I mean, I mentioned that only because it's, it's what, it's what we do as women. Um, you know, we, and men do it too. I, I don't mean to make this just a women's issue. Men do it too. They just don't do it as, as as much and they don't do it with the same intensity because they haven't had the primary responsibility as as um the caregiver to the kids for for a long time that many more men do today obviously than ever before but the fact is we have a very um busy society where these days you almost always have to have both parents working um, that means if you want to have a family, you're doing lots of things at all times. And you have to ask your family to bend a little when your work intrudes in their space. And you have to ask your work to bend a little um, and allow your family to intrude sometimes. There's no other way to make it happen. We can't be binary about this. We can't only be parents or workers. We have to be more sophisticated about how we see the overlapping um, demands on our times. And that goes for men and women. Yeah, but two and a half days, that's pretty astounding. Well, I brought a babysitter. I didn't bring her and like plop her in the chair next to me. I brought I brought two babysitters. She was really um, quiet during the hearing, except when my opposing counsel insulted me and she screeched. And then she went back to sleep again. It was, I think it was meant to be. It was fine. You know, I mean, there are women who... I, they just, if you have babies and you're a lawyer, uh, your clients need you and the courts are not very accommodating. They just aren't. I wasn't going to indulge them. I was going to accommodate myself and do what I had to do. And that includes yelling at the courts sometimes. I, I had a judge say to me once when a jury was out deliberating, two of my children were in daycare and I had to go pick them up. And she said, uh, the jury wants to stay late tonight because they're going to have a verdict. And I said, but I have to go get my children at daycare. And she said, oh, well, here, you know, use my phone and 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 you can make a call. And I said, who do you think I'm calling? Like, I'm, I'm going to get my children. I don't have anyone to call. And you will tell the jury to either come back now or come back tomorrow. But I am not going to leave my children at daycare because the jury feels like staying late. And the jury came back right away. And they had a guilty verdict and everybody was happy and it was fine. But, you know, women do have to say, listen, this is part of who I am as a lawyer and you, judge, are going to have to accommodate me in some fashion. It's not a disability. It's just part of life. It's how we recreate as a species and you have to accommodate yeah. this. You just yeah, have of course. to. Amy Porterfield, ex-corporate type, turned CEO of a multi-million dollar business. Her purpose is to help women navigate into living the life that they dreamed of. You come at this from experience because you spent a lot of time in corporate America. Actually, I always thought I was a really good corporate girl climbing that corporate ladder and wanting to get all the awards and the promotions. And I always thought that's where I'd be. Then all of a sudden, something triggered you where you said, no, nope, not going to do this anymore. My last corporate job was with peak performance coach, Tony Robbins, where I was the director of content development. So I was working for Tony for about six years. And I was getting paid well, I got to travel, I was a director, so I had a team around me. And on paper, it was a really good job. I had also just gotten married and was traveling all the time, never was seeing my husband and never was at home. But here's what happened. Tony decided to do a focus group of some type and he brought in a bunch of online business owners. Now, they needed someone to take notes for the meeting. So this is very humbling. I was brought in to take notes. I sat at a side table and all these guys came in. They were all men. And they sat at this big oak table in our offices in San Diego, California. And Tony said, guys, tell me about your businesses because Tony was getting more into the online space. So they went around and they talked about what they did. Now, these guys were in all these different areas like real estate, relationship building, investing, so many different markets. 
but they all talked about freedom. They were working when they wanted, where they wanted, how they wanted. They were busting through any glass ceiling, although it was like beyond anything I've ever heard about the kind of money they were making and the kind of impact they were making. And I realized for the first time in my life, I have never been free. And so I took the worst notes of my life that day because I just wanted to hear what they were saying. I didn't really understand what they were doing, but I did understand they had a lifestyle of freedom. I did understand they were making a lot of good money and a lot of good impact. And for the first time, I looked back at my life and I thought, I've always had a boss. My first boss was my dad. He he was very strict, his way or the highway. So I grew up with this dad that was essentially my boss. Then I get into the corporate world. I've always had bosses. I've never, ever called the shots. And so that was that turning point that I thought, I don't know what these guys are doing, but I'm going to figure this out. I need to be my own boss. And did you decide at the time that there was something to being your own boss that you pick up somewhere that had not been shared with you? Because saying you want to be your own boss mm-hmm. and then having the skills, the abilities, the support systems, yeah. the intuitions, the insights, the understandings to actually be your own boss are two very different things. Everybody wants to be their own boss, but being able to do it successfully are two very different things. In that moment, if you put me back into that meeting, I had no idea how to be my own boss. And I sure as heck didn't have the confidence to do so. I had done well in corporate and I wasn't a vice president or a big shot over there, but I had done well enough. So yeah, in that moment, no, I did not know how I was going to do this, nor did I really believe that I was capable. But here's why I know that I had to figure out how to make it work. I just wanted something more so than I wanted security or comfort. And and I really, looking back, I've thought about this a lot. I was secure in that job, regular paycheck, paid vacations, good job. Security was important to me. But in that moment, for the first time, something else was more important than security or comfort. So I was bound and determined to figure out how to be my own boss. It sounds to me like you're saying that the pain of staying where you were was worse than the pain that you imagined if you reached for something, even if you failed. I, at the moment, if you ask me, Amy, were you, this was 15 years ago, were you prepared to fail? I'd probably say, oh gosh, Dr. Phil, I don't know. That's like a big question. I don't know if I was ready in that moment, but I did know that what was keeping me safe was keeping me stuck. I just knew that there was something in that moment I thought, I'm watching these guys. And if these guys can do it, there's a tiny little courage voice inside me thought, if these guys can do it, I can figure this out. Like, come on, there's got to be a way. And so when I realized, wait a second, I feel stuck. I never see my husband. I'm always on the road. I've hit a glass ceiling. I know I can make more money than what I'm going to make here. There's got to be another way. So I think it was this desire for something more that I thought, okay, I'm willing to take a risk. Now, here's the thing. The reason I wrote the book Two Weeks Notice is I don't think that some woman in a nine to five job is going to have a moment like, you know what? I got to be my own boss. Let's go. And she gives her two weeks notice tomorrow. That's not how it happens. What I had to do is I had to build a runway. And I talk about this in the book where there were things that I had to make calculated moves in order to be ready. It took me a full year from that fateful meeting to actually driving out of those San Diego offices in my little white car with my back of my car packed with all my boxes from my office and drive out into the sunset. It took me a full year and I did it scared. Like I did not do it fully confident. But again, I think the pain of staying was bigger than the comfort of being there. And so I think that is something that anybody listening right now, ask yourself, what do you want? I think the reason we stay stuck is we don't even know what we want. What do you want? I didn't want to be told what to do, when to do, or how to do it anymore. I didn't want to be on someone else's time or someone else's dime. I didn't want to be bossed around anymore. It was like, finally hit me. And that kind of energy, that kind of like fierceness in me, it took a little while to me to get the courage to leave. But I really do think we have to kind of dig that up. Once you get there, once you do break the code, once you do figure out what that formula is that resonates with people, connects with people, and you find out the value that they're looking for and you deliver that, then not that you don't have to evolve with the time, but now you have created what I call consequential knowledge. 
you have knowledge that is consequential and you uniquely own that. Somebody can't come and do that without you. And that makes you truly in business for yourself. I was about three years into my business and I thought I had unbossed myself. I thought I was a a good boss and leading the way. And then I was presented from a peer of mine to become a partner in my business. So I had almost hit a million dollar year. And this guy who was younger than me, who was really strategic and smart, he said, Amy, I've got an idea. Why don't you make me a 50-50 partner and we can explode this business you've created? And I was friends with him for a while. And Dr. Phil, I would love to tell you that it took me weeks to make a decision. I'd love to tell you I consulted lawyers. I talked to my husband. We went over it. I'd like to tell you all that happened. It took one night of sleep. And I said yes to this guy. Yes, you can have 50% of my business. Because yet again, I was scared that I couldn't make it on my own. And I don't want to go too deep into this because you could you could give me some therapy like that. Believe me, I've had a lot. But I've always thought that I needed a man. I, I thought that I needed a man to help me make decisions. And, you know, it started with my dad and then all these male bosses. And so here's this guy saying, I see potential in you, Amy. You could be huge, but let me help you. And I went right back into my old habits of thinking I can't do it alone. And so I said yes. And for years, we made millions together. We actually, this business really took off until about three or four years in. And I looked in the mirror and thought, I don't even know who I am. I have let this guy become my boss. And it was no fault to him. I did this, but I went right back into, are you proud of me? Uh, Am I doing a good job? And when the business wasn't working, what do we do? What should we do? Help me, give me advice. Like I lost myself again. And I had already become an entrepreneur with almost a million dollar business. And so when I realized, wait a second, I've literally went back into employee mode, I had to snap myself out of it really quickly. So the story I didn't want to tell in the book that I did tell is what it took to get me out of that situation. I literally almost lost my entire business because we almost had to dissolve it. Now, the reason I bring this up is because what you said, in a, there was a moment that I was so weak and I almost gave all of it up. And then I remembered, wait a second. I know how to make money online. I actually, I've done this. So you can burn this down and I am going to build it back up. And that was the first time I think I've ever felt incredibly confident in my abilities because I had done it. And if you take this away from me, I will do it again. So fast forward and I talk about in the book how I got out of it. And I, from the time I got out of it till a year later, I went from $5 million in my business to $16.5 million in a year. And I believe it's because it was the first time that I stepped into, wait a second, no one's coming to save me. I am going to figure this out. And I have officially started to believe in myself. That's how powerful it can be. And that's why I had to write the book. I want more women to step into that. I'm not unique. I'm very insecure in many, many ways. But when I realized, wait a second, I got this, burn it down. I'll build it back better is when I stepped into it. Yeah. And at that point, you've just made a decision. Hey, I do know something that is not common knowledge. And this is what I mean by consequential knowledge. And I tell people that if you want to succeed in this life, you need to develop consequential knowledge. If you can be replaced with what you're doing to make money in two hours, if you work at McDonald's, which is a legitimate job, I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying, if you can be replaced in two hours, then you don't have consequential knowledge. But if you are a computer repair tech, if you are a brain surgeon, if you have a unique business and talent for creating content and marketing on the internet, whatever it might be, if that's something that if you leave, they can't replace you in a short period of time, you have consequential knowledge. What you know is consequential to your life and their business then all of a sudden, you're not working for minimum wage anymore. Now you're bringing something to the table that people need, and they're willing to pay for that. Yes. When you said, hey, burn it down, I can build it back because I've got that information, that's when you become independent. Absolutely. And that's when life begins to change. So when you think about let's say you're in a nine to five job and you're listening right now and you look around and you think this cannot be it. There's got to be something better for me. I cannot stay here much longer. 
The, the first thought is I'm going to quit and get another nine to five job. But when you build that kind of knowledge that you talk about, and, and this is something you can do over time, I have no doubt in my mind, you never turn back. Like, can you imagine Dr. Phil ever turning back and working for somebody else? Can you even imagine at this point? It just wouldn't work. I mean, <laughs> it wouldn't just... work. Exactly. Now, you're different than me, and you probably always had that gene of like, I'm going to be my own boss and I'm going to lead. Like, well, I have a quick question for you. Have you ever had a boss? The last job I had was for Hallmark Cards in my junior year of high school. <laughs> I had a feeling. Okay, so you are definitely a rarity where you probably never were meant to have a boss. But for those listening, I was absolutely meant to have a boss and I was really good at it. But I didn't realize when I didn't have a boss anymore, you will never, ever go back. There's nothing in you. When you get a taste of freedom of being your own boss, you will never, ever let anybody walk all over you, decide when you can take a vacation, when you can get a raise. All of that becomes like, no, that's not part of my story. So I just am here to prove that it is absolutely possible to move from employee to boss over time. It's just one decision at a time. And I want to say at the same time, not all bosses are evil. Oh, I totally agree. Yes. Whether they're male or female, young or old, whatever, not all bosses are evil. Entrepreneurship is not for everyone. I spend a lot of time working in the legal profession. There are lawyers that are cut out to be contingency fee plaintiff lawyers, where they might work on a case for three years and not make a dime and then make $38 million. And then there are lawyers that work on the defense side where they get paid an hourly fee. They know what it's going to be. They'll never make the $38 million, but they have the security of knowing they're going to get paid every month. One side is not for everybody, and the other yes. side is not for everybody. Different personalities fit different things. But if you hear that call of wanting to be in business for yourself, wanting to chart your own course, once you do it, you burn the ships in the harbor. There is no going back. I agree that entrepreneurship is not for everybody. I have a sister who's a second grade teacher that never in her wildest dreams does she want my life. She thinks my life is crazy compared to her life. And so she is never going to do this. However, when I looked around personally and realized this is not what I want, it didn't mean I have to, had to hate the life I had. It's just that I had bigger aspirations for me. So some people listening, you don't have to be miserable to go after bigger dreams. You just have to get clear on what you want. And I think that does kind of change things a little bit for some. Yeah, I think it's so important that people define what success looks like and feels like for them. Because the worst thing in the world I think you could do is succeed at the wrong thing. Can you imagine spending your whole life and becoming the best accountant ever okay. to account? And if then you get at the you end want. and say, my God, I have become the supreme accountant on the planet and I wanted to be a guitar player. Oh, I mean, exactly. how miserable would that be? Reshma Shajani is building a pipeline of young women to work in computing and reshaping the global economy with her powerful, innovative, game-changing nonprofit, Girls Who Code. She is the first Indian American woman to run for Congress, worked with the House and Senate to develop a, quote, Marshall Plan for Moms in response to the crisis mothers have endured because of COVID. She served as New York City's deputy public advocate to support DREAMers and to help revise the nation's campaign finance laws. She serves on the board of overseers for Harvard University and the International Rescue Committee and serves on the board of trustees of the Economic Club of New York. That's just among her growing list of important responsibilities. She's also a wife and a mother in her spare time like she's got any. She's been recognized by Forbes as one of the greatest leaders in the world. You talked a lot about how boys are raised one way and girls are raised another, and it's reflected in actual research studies about how boys and girls, as early as the fifth grade, react to challenges in a different way. What got you interested in all of this? Well, you know, I'm the daughter of refugees. Uh, my parents came to this country in 1973. 
They were expelled by the dictator Idi Amin. Uh, there were two of a thousand refugees that got status to come to this country because they were engineers. My father, though, had to work as a machinist in a plant. You know, my mother sold cosmetics. And my dad, when he when I was very little, he would read me these little Reader's Digest books about Dr. King and Mahatma Gandhi. And there was something about hearing those stories when I was little about these change makers, these these warriors you know, these people who are put on the earth to, to do something that stuck with me. And so I've always wanted to fight for people like my parents, vulnerable, poor, you know, people who, you know, others had counted out. And, and as we know, Dr. Phil, a lot of those are in our society and across the world are women and girls. And so there was something I don't know. I've always been moved by the plight of women and girls. It's always been my, my, the thing, the people that I've wanted to fight for. Do you think that's changing in America at least, or do you think there's still that big gender difference in the way they're treated and the way they see themselves? I thought it was changing, you know, and then the pandemic hit and I, and, and women are in crisis. You know, Dr. Phil, the, the, you know, the CDC reported that the, the second subgroup besides young people that the, have the highest levels of anxiety and depression are moms. Moms don't break. But there's something about the past two years in the pandemic. There's something about our public policies. There's something about our structure that we have in our society that is really pushing mothers to the limit. And, you know, one of the things I've really been reflecting on, you know, is the fact that, like, we, we just think that in, in our country or in, in America, in some, in some ways that like motherhood, parenthood is a personal choice. And so you don't get anything from your government, your society, your neighbor, your friends, your workplace. Right. But like you don't have a functioning society, you know, that has a declining birth rate. You know, family values, being at family is like such a core part of what it means to be an American. And I think we've lost a little bit of that. In the 50s, we were not a double income society to the degree we are now. I think now the statistics are high 70s, maybe yep. even low 80s double income society, whereas in the 50s, it was maybe half that. So now we've got both parents working outside the home, bringing in income that the family relies on. And Previously, families adjusted to living on one income, and the second income was what you fell back on if something happened. Right. Somebody got sick or a job was lost or unexpected things came up. Then that second partner would get a job and bridge the gap. But now we're a largely double-income society, and 100% of those two incomes are being absorbed, so there's no cushion Right. There, but women are a vital part of the family's economic lifeline. That's really showing the pay gap, right? Because they're yeah. out there in the workplace, but working for less. That's right. That's right. You know, women are not a must, a, a nice to have in the workforce. They're a must have. But the problem is, Dr. Fo, we've built workplaces on the fact that we've treated women as a nice to have. So, you know, we have work days that are nine to five and school days that are eight to three. Because back in, like you said, in the 50s, he was at work and she was at home and she could pick up the kids. Now it doesn't work that way. And so all of society is, is based on an outdated model that no longer exists. And who's picking up the slack? Women. And the pandemic really exposed this. So like when schools shut down, a lot of families in America treat schools, I know my parents said, as daycare centers. Of course. And so when schools shut down and you still had to work, you had no, no system of care. And, you know, when we created this thing where you had to like log in your kid at Zoom, you know, I have a kindergartner. I can't be like, hey, Sean, log yourself on. See you later. No, I got to be right there with him while I'm trying to keep my job. And so when that happened, it was women that were doing that unpaid labor, that homeschooling, the cooking, the cleaning, the putting on your mask, making sure you wiped off everything, right? Just in case the virus, I mean, all, all of that while you were maintaining your full-time job. And, and, and nobody was looking at this saying, whoa, 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 we got to rethink this. You decided to run for Congress. Mm -hmm. Did you think you were going to win? 
Oh gosh, yes. You never run unless you think you're going to win. I was so naive. I, you know, I ran in 2010 against an 18-year incumbent in a Democratic primary. Uh, I thought I'd shake every hand, meet every voter. I had no idea what I was doing, Dr. Phil. Like I was the daughter of refugees. I didn't know how to build a campaign. I didn't know how to ask for money. I didn't know how to walk into a senior center and, and give a talk. I mean, my first interview was on Chris Matthews. I'd never gone on TV before. He was so mean to me, but it was, but it was the best 10 months of my life because I, it, there's nothing like living afraid in terms of really just like, like I am not, if, by going through that experience, I am not terrified of anything. You know, next week I got to give a convention speech at Yale in front of like, you know, 20,000 people. And I'm like, bring it, you know, like because of that congressional race, because every feel fearful thing that ever happened to me in many ways happened at 33. And so, but yes, when you run for office, you think you're going to win. And, you know, the thing is I ran again and I lost again. That's harder because, you know, your second race, you've kind of like, you know, you didn't make the same mistakes. You learned all the lessons. You run a more perfect campaign. And then you realize, oh, maybe this is about me. Like, maybe you just didn't want to elect me. But even that, you know, Dr. Phil, it's like a gift because, you know, when you think about some of the best athletes, LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, you know, what kept them driving, what kept them, you know, again, drilling 16, 17 hours a day was something happened to them early in their career. You know, whether, you know, they didn't make a shot or they didn't get picked on the first draft, something happened to them and that put a ship, you know, a chip on their shoulder. So I've had a chip on my shoulder. You, know, you read my, you read my bio in the beginning, be like, wow, you've accomplished it. Because I had a chip on my shoulder from the time I was 33 and was like, all right, you're not going to pick me. I'm going to show you that I can make a difference. And every, every, every day since then, you know, I get up and do my 16 hour a day drills you know what I mean? And, 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 and show that I am worthy of being a public servant, that I am worthy of being an American. I'm worthy of like fighting for people and that I can make a difference, even though you didn't think I could. You really do find resiliency from those things. But what's the message to parents of young girls? How do they do that? How do they instill that in them? Stop protecting them. Stop protecting this. But a friend of mine was telling me a story about her, her father when she was eight. I think he was in the military. One day he just walked in and he just took her pillow. I was like, you don't need it anymore. Like, it's, it's like that kind of just tough. Like, we coddle our kids. We protect them. You know, if they forget to bring their homework at school, we, you know, we don't know what it feels, let them feels like to, to make a mistake or to not get picked. Like, we're, we're like, I still have parents you know, who call me for their daughters to write recommendation letters to them. I'm like, they're 18. They can email me. So it's just like, we got to, we got to stop that. I, I, you know, I, again, grew up with like immigrant parents that were working class. They didn't know what I was doing. I wasn't in sports. <laughs> I mean, they didn't know where I applied to college. They didn't read my recommendation letter, nothing. And I turned out fine. So I just think this whole intensive parenting this over coddling, this over, we're literally building zero resiliency in our children. And then we wonder why they're medicated. We wonder why, you know, they're not able to deal with strife. We also have to focus on what we're teaching these kids when they're in school or when they're in daycare. And that's what I was saying. You say there's this gender difference, not just about the job they're doing. It's about the values they're being taught. You made a big distinction about the difference of young women and girls being taught to strive for perfection mm. and young boys being taught bravery. Mm. That was a big difference yeah. to you. Talk about that a little bit, because I really want people to hear your take on that. It's yeah. very interesting. So, you know, a couple of years ago, I get asked to do a TED Talk. And like I said, you know, I've been working on fighting for women and girls my whole life, led my first march when I was 13. And so I wanted to take that opportunity to get on that stage and, and say something about gender equality that like may put the conversation in a different perspective. And I run an organization, Girls Who Code. You know, we have taught half a million girls to code across the country. I got Girls Who Code clubs in every county, town, and parish, you know, from like Kansas to Nebraska to Atlanta, I mean, everywhere. 
And, you know, when girls come to our programs to learn how to code, none of them have coded before. And so you're coming in with no knowledge. And during that first week, every teacher would tell me the same story. She'd say a student would come in her class and she'd look at her teacher and she'd say, I don't know what code to write. And the teacher would look at her computer screen and she'd see a blank, a blank text editor. So if she didn't know any different, she thought that her student spent the past 10 minutes just staring at the screen. But when the teacher pressed undo a few times, she saw that her student actually wrote code, but then deleted it. So instead of showing the progress that she made or saying, hey, I, I wrote this, but I think I made a mistake, she rather show nothing at all. So it's this idea of perfection or bust. I tell this story on the TED stage. I walk up and I am inundated. You know, six million people watch this talk and, they, and I'm with, with women who say, I do this too. With dads who say, my daughter does this too. With girls who say, and it didn't matter whether you were a teacher or a doctor, a dancer, or an artist, black, white, straight, gay, somewhere along the line, you had learned how to delete the code of your life. And what I mean by that is somewhere along the line, you had learned how to give up before you even try. And I wanted to understand, is that true? And if it is, when did you learn it? And can you unlearn it? And so, you know, I wrote my, my last book, Brave Not Perfect, about this. And, and I learned it is true. You know, go to any, you know, go to any playground in America and you'll see what I'm talking about. You know, we tell our boys to like climb to the top of the monkey bars and then just jump headfirst. But with our girls, it's like, be careful, honey. Don't swing too high. Did you take that toy away from her? Give it back. And what happens when, when girls are born, we want to wrap them up with bubble wrap. You know, a friend of mine just had a baby and she's teaching her how to walk and she's like walking behind her and she's like, be careful, honey, be careful, honey. And she's like, and then your voice came and I, I changed it to like, go baby, go baby. Right. But it's like this instinct that we have to physically protect our girls. And then around eight or nine, that physical protection extends to emotional protection. So when our daughter comes home from gymnastics and is crying because she can't do a cartwheel, we say, don't worry, honey. I'm going to put you into soccer. And so what happens is that young women get addicted to perfection and they gravitate toward the, the things that they're good at. And that addiction to perfection, that not building resiliency, that not learning how to fail has huge consequences on every aspect. So, you know, in education, women get a, a B and declare economics as a major and get a B in their introductory level course they drop out, you know, whereas boys are like, I got a D I'm running for president, right? Completely yeah. different, completely different result. You know, you see the mental health, as you know, Dr. Phil, right? The rates of suicide, anxiety, and depression, much higher for girls, you know, than they are for boys. And you see it in leadership where men apply for a job. If they meet 60% of the qualifications and women don't even apply unless they meet a hundred percent. So if we're waiting you know, if we're waiting to be perfect to lead, if we're waiting to be perfect to live, we're never going to close the leadership gap. And I think the antidote to perfectionism is bravery. Mm -hmm.